Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. And uh, joining me in studio is North Carolina Congressman Dan Bishop. Welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Pete. How I'm are glad you? Glad to be with you. Neat to be in the studio again. Yeah, it's been a while. And um, you've been on the show before. We've talked about other things. But you're here for the whole hour. So uh, we got a, a couple things to, to go over. You were in... Um, you were in a. You were the 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 highlight of a recent editorial <laughs> written by my friends Paige at Mastin at the Observer. <laughs> so the headline was um, that you had a grand time mocking women at abortion hearings. So uh, the first question I would have is, did you have a grand time mocking women? Yeah. No, I I, I did never. I didn't mock a person at all. Uh, but I did have a grand time. It was no. I it was you know. It, I thought it was enlightening. Uh, but the observer man, they are so out of the torn from the hinge. They've they've sort of made a made a study of ignoring me for <laughs> for for the last several couple of years, decades, I would say. Yeah, no, they, there was a time when they weren't exactly ignoring; they were trying to destroy. True, uh, but they didn't get there, and uh, I think it, it, since then it's been a studied silence or avoidance. But that that's about the most infantile uh, editorial I've ever seen out of that uh, paper, and it's sort of a tragedy to me about the, the what you know the path of the paper generally yeah but that's just sad <laughs> so this they were commenting this uh editor which i asked this question the other day and i because the headline is a lie i watched your the hearing i watched yep. your questioning uh there was no mocking of women there was uh there were there were questions uh about uh the dobbs case the supreme court will get into that as well but uh, then you also ask, and this is what really tripped her trigger. Sorry, I said her. I'm not sure. I do not want to assign <laughs> pronoun usage. Can't make any presumptions there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this, but this is the exhaustion of discourse now because right. everything is offensive and you're always walking on eggshells. I mean, everybody but me. They're walking on mm-hmm. eggshells about how to address people, talk with them. And it just it, it corrodes trust. And so the um, which I think our society relies on trust that we're not acting in bad faith with each other all the time. Yeah. And that's, I think, what this corruption of the language is, is kind of leading us to, which I think is why. And I'll ask you, why were you uh, why are you so focused on trying to get a definition of what a woman is? Why did you ask this of uh, two of the, the witnesses? Peter, I, th- I think it it um, it has a very serious communicative or it, it exposes something it's devastating frankly to the credibility of witnesses who were in that hearing by decision of the democratic majority to advise congress on an important issue it indicates that they are so that their that their thinking and their public posture is so freighted with a with a, a political orthodoxy a way of thinking that they're bound to that they can't speak simple truths they have to go elaborately out of their way, uh, even to the point of, of uh, you know, just disregarding truth in order to say the things that are, that are well, politically correct is the old term, but it's sort of like on steroids. It's, mm. it's a, it's a, it is a, a militant orthodoxy. It is a form of radicalism in the way they think. An ideology commits them to an idea that they know to be counter to truth. I think asking those, and, and as you say, I have five minutes to ask questions. I spent far by far more time on issues like the institutional norms that are being trashed every day by those same radicals in the leaking of the opinion in uh, 
in the question of of the Roe versus Wade and Casey uh, 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 authorities yeah. and whether they should be subject to or revisiting and their analysis and their their reasoning examined. So that was the mainstay. I asked the question because I I did anticipate I'd get a strange answer. That uh, what is a woman? And you know it, it wasn't original to me. It was asked by Marsha Blackburn in the in the Senate confirmation hearings of her Ketanji Brown Jackson, and, and her response was, I'm not a biologist. She couldn't give a common sense answer, and she resorted to that as, as her shield. Well, the first, one of the women, the first one that I asked, one of the witnesses there, was an abortionist, was an abortion doctor. So she's a medical doctor. I couldn't think that she, she, she could not probably use the same dodge. Instead, she sort of attacked me. She said, I need to educate people like you. Yeah, I heard that. that. And uh, and that was fine. I'm not. She didn't bother me. But but she was unwilling to do it as well. And then the the second the uh, the other witness that was there was was willing to go headlong into that uh, that notion. Of, yes, men can get pregnant and have abortions. Okay, sixty million people saw that tweet uh, that the House Judiciary Republicans sent out. Really? within three days. Now, to me, that communicates something. It is now. She Paige Maston would say I was getting a talking point. Actually, it's a it's it is it is. It's impactful because people, by and large, there's a massive silent majority out there. Out there, I think I'm not sure they're that silent, but they're who are looking at this and they're saying, "Yeah, that's that's craziness. That that is a point when our dialogue, our, our discourse, is not functional. If you're so committed to an ideological extreme that you can't converse over normal terms, right? And simply saying, as I did, you know, yes, tongue in cheek, but truth is also that. You try to refer to somebody as a he or a she, and now you're up and you're guarding yourself. You're almost self-censoring because you don't know what the words are. And I would submit that this is sort of the whole point. Right. The whole point, this is the, the project, which is to dismantle institutions and vocabulary is essential to doing that. You, you have said, and I listened to some of what you had said about this subject. And I think you made reference to postmodernism. I followed James Lindsay, who's a commentator out on Twitter, very careful. He's a he's an extraordinarily insightful, sophisticated guy. Learned a lot about postmodernism and what leads to you know we've called critical race theory. Uh, all that's tied together. It has a lot to do with denying the existence of of uh, essential truth and that everything's a social construct delivered, you know, created by narratives in society. And that's why all all these. Uh, oppressive environments exist where they're in the victims and the intersectionality groups that are victimized. It, it's a lot of, it's, it's, it's a real, I believe all that ideology is essentially in its essence wrong. It's been around for a very long time. It's a form of cultural Marxism, but you know, here I'm given a lawyerly explanation. Sometimes it is when you just say, well, what's a woman? And somebody can't answer that question that the whole world can see in a glimpse very quickly how bizarre this is. I, I suspect the outrage from the observer and from people on the left is precisely because it is effective. Yes, that's that, right. That's why. And so now this is the the water carrying. This is the papering over the cleanup on aisle. You know, gender. Um, this is the this is the issue that they're trying to have to explain to you. That I think what they said to was uh, that anyone with a uterus can get pregnant. Not everyone with a uterus is a woman. Yeah, b- bizarre. Um, and, uh, and, and right. I mean, I, the, the essence of that column is to say, Dan Bishop's a bad guy. Let's throw an ad hominem attack at Dan Bishop. He's a bad guy. You should be mad at him. Uh, and frankly, the sentence you just read, and there's some others in there when they actually make a, some attempt to, um, 
unpack the the uh, situation or the 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 essence of the argument, it's it's a it's catastrophic il, uh, uh, illogic reasoning. Yeah, it's, it's totally. Yeah, exactly. Congressman Dan Bishop is with me, by the way. If you have a question you'd like to uh, to ask, you can send it to me, Pete, at thepetecalendarshow.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Pete Callender or 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here with Congressman Dan Bishop from North Carolina. Is it still, is the district still in North Carolina? All right. Just want to make sure. It is that. All right. Uh, And so uh, this Judiciary Committee hearing at the House, uh, what, last week, and then I think it was the prior week or something, there was another hearing where you started talking about uh, the leaking of the the rough draft uh, in the Dobbs case. And... Uh, you're a lawyer, um, and so I'm curious what your take. You seem pretty ticked off that this thing got leaked out. So, from a, you know, wearing the lawyer hat, what is the damage, or what is your assessment of the impact that that has on the court? The first thing that people need to know, and if they don't know, is that it's never happened in the history of the United States Supreme Court. You've never seen a draft opinion leak while the court was deliberating a case. These are so called at the Supreme Court and state Supreme Courts, uh, frankly, uh, courts of appeals, federal courts of appeals are all what they call collegial courts. They are courts with more than one judge, so they're deciding these issues on appeal and and very complicated issues in many cases. The reasoning must be very tight. They split constantly, obviously, in the Supreme Court. But that deliberative process has been always recognized. And even the witness, one of these radical witnesses in that hearing where I asked the question, of, are, are you, uh, what is a woman? Uh, the law professor, she was a radical too, by the way. But I was curious what sort of common ground we could establish. And she did concede that the court's deliberative process should be protected. Now, she went ahead to say, well, I don't think the leak of the opinion is, she said, that's an issue. I don't think it's the issue. It's pretty much the issue. The only thing that's worse for me is the leaking of the residence addresses of justices and formation of protest crowds outside there. Now, I'm not going to go say that they don't have the First Amendment right to do that, but as a matter of discourse and the coarsening of our discourse and the fact that you have, uh, there's a statute against the intimidation of judges. Uh, when you're talking about even protest, it gets pretty close to a line there. There may still be a zone of First Amendment protected activity. But it, but uh, when you're talking about a, a judicial process ongoing and an attempt to affect that, there are all sorts of things that are done to protect that process. Lawyers can be gagged from going out and talking about a case in public because you're trying because of the need to avoid a mob-like atmosphere in the exercise of judicial function. So the leaking of this opinion by someone obviously very closely inside the court, as Justice Thomas has subsequently said, destroys trust. Those guys can't work together effectively when they're trying to, you know, give a full examination of these issues and bring these different perspectives to bear. If somebody's running out and disclosing part a, a, an opinion in process, recognize it's not the final expression of the opinion either. Some justices may want things to be in there or to not be in there that would uh, form very much a part of the what the consciousness is of the of the nation on this critical issue. Well, remember the story of the the 
reporter or producer that was sent to tail the jury in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial? A- absolutely. Why, why did that person run afoul of the law? One of the things you're very adept at, Pete, and that's, is, is coming up with an, an analogy like that. So that's right. You have media who thought it appropriate to go tail the jury. They are cloistered uh, so that their deliberations will not be influenced for the sake of justice being as, as, uh, as pure and, and, uh, and unfettered as we can deliver. But, uh, but you know, some, when, when you see a side of the debate who feels it, that it is their prerogative to discard all of these institutional norms. And that's another point that I made in that hearing prior to the hearing where the question came up about the, what's a woman that I, that I was pretty exercised about, and I still am. Well, it, because they are related. The use of pronouns and acceptance of what heretofore was always assumed to be the truth, that there are two sexes, that now apparently this is not the case, um, that's also undermining an institutional norm. I mean, this is, as you mentioned earlier, and I've heard uh, when you, this was probably, what, a year ago, when you introduced the legislation on the critical race theory, I mean, I think you are maybe still to this day the only elected official I've heard cite Gramsci, Antonio right. Gramsci. Right. And if if you're having a discussion about the destruction of institutional norms, the corruption of the language, and the slow march through the institutions, you can't have these discussions unless you know who Gramsci was. That's right. And and all of it goes back, you know, you can go back before that. It's Hegelian dialectics. It goes back to the... Uh, what do they call it? The what school? The uh, in in German Frankfurt Frankfurt school, and um, it, it is. I mean, that's. I think that's right. If you haven't, it, and, and I, that doesn't make me an expert in no, the philosophy. Me neither. Uh, but you, but you can kind of know when you've got your depth to the point that you can at least confidently think about it and why these things are problematic. And it is. And so when people say, "Well, this is communism," it's well, not precisely, but it's quite close in terms of the reasoning process. And the activism that is, and the way it's designed, and it all has a very dark side. James Lindsay, who I mentioned earlier, has um, he, he find he has an interesting thing of uh, way of tying it to the oldest heresy in the world, uh, Gnosticism. That the people who are the advocates of the special classes and everything, they have a, a special knowledge. That's why you know, and and you can see it in this idea about what a man and a woman is. We have a special knowledge that. Uh, that puts us, and we're your superior, by the way, and your job is to acquiesce or knuckle under to us and, uh, and, and accept the orthodoxy we're forcing on you. And if you don't, we'll destroy whatever you hold dear. Uh, no institutional norm is safe. Uh, no constitutional right. We're not bound by anything in the Constitution concerning your right of free expression. We can t- say what you say is disinformation, misinformation. And, uh, and we'll build a government organization. You know, this. I'm, I'm obviously... Uh, talking about what they did at the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. We'll build something and put a radical in charge of that and, and start uh, saying what you can and cannot say. We'll develop new standards about uh, you know, the ESG commu- uh, standards in the corporate world to, uh, to say w- or, or do uh, diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. Maybe that's the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the appropriate way to look at it. We'll have training for you. You'll go to, just like you're sent to the edu- re-education camps in an older day, we'll now do train you in your corporate environment. Dan Bishop, Congressman, North Carolina. He's going to be uh, with us here for the rest of the hour.
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. All right, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Here we have Kevin. Uh, hello, Kevin. You are on with Congressman Dan Bishop. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I, I really just had two quick comments. One was about the uh, gun issue, and I was wondering why couldn't the president do like Donald Trump did and just uh, put ridiculous tariffs on all the incoming guns that come from all these other countries. And my second comment was, uh, I agree with the uh, congressman asking the comment about uh, what dictates of what makes a woman, because evidently the writers of the Constitution was uh, a little... Uh, they, they, they couldn't tell you what made up a human. I mean, they classified blacks as three-fifths three of a human. So I thought that was a good question that he asked. Well, so, uh, yeah, okay, Kevin, I appreciate it. I would just point out that the three-fifths part of that, do you want to take the three-fifths Yeah, I'd be glad to. Yeah, I, think, I think Kevin makes a good good point. One thing that's always been, uh, I, I guess, it's worth a point worth, worth making here in, in terms of what the uh, that the Supreme Court has made egregious errors. And that's mm-hmm. right. The, the Dred Scott decision was uh, they held in that case, the Supreme Court held that uh, blacks who were freedmen, who had uh, been in been in bondage but had been freed were not citizens of the United States, and consequently they didn't enjoy the privileges and immunities of, of citizenship, which is part of what the Fourteenth Amendment uh, was enacted to reverse. And it was an absurd decision, but um, th- that's the thing. Sometimes reasoning at the with the best effort at the Supreme Court level is is freighted with stuff, and it's horrible. And so uh, the the same. Frankly, maybe the same attitude that where people are are, are inclined to say what a, that they they can't wrestle with what a woman is, the reality of what a woman is, in in the same way that you cannot imagine going back now that someone who's a freed black person, even in the confines of slavery before slavery had ended, would be denied citizenship because of what reasoning? I mean, it's just bizarre. Yeah. So I I don't know. I see a commonality. Kevin's other question about about guns i you know that's that is a big issue following uvalde yesterday and i and i think all of us are searching our hearts and minds about it um i i the first first thing i recognize is that the the government exists to secure our rights that's what thomas jefferson said in the declaration of independence and uh and our and so we have these fundamental rights in uh, american society since the since the uh, adoption of the constitution has recognized that that includes the right of self-defense and so everything, I think we have to always, it's tough because you come out of these events and you go, my, this anguish is unbearable. Why don't we, we got to do something. And we, and, and I think that's true. If there's something to do that will fix this, you have to do it. But it takes calmer reason to say, well, remember though, the right of self-defense is fundamental to set forth in the constitution. You got to make sure you protect that right. You got to make sure you don't, in whatever policy response you give, you don't create more harm than good. And you also ought to make sure that you're, that the whatever policy response you give, whatever legislation you pass, will fit will help resolve the problem that appears to exist. And that's those are tough tests. Yeah, you no know, simple answer is really that easy. And all of these, you know, the things, the, frankly, the folks on the left, people like Beto O'Rourke, who showed up at the governor's uh, press conference when they're talking about the 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 you know getting out the news of how the event occurred and start scoring political points on it doesn't seem to me. And I think there, you know, I'm sure he'd say he was, he's serious about it and he's fervent and he's fighting. 
but that the, the posture of that seems to me to be one where you're trying to exploit the most grievous tragedy you can have. And, and we really ought to be above it, but I'm afraid our discourse goes in the other direction all the time. By the way, I think you assigned gender. I think it's Betix with an X now. It's not Beto. <laughs> He's Latinx. Yeah, exactly. Um, He's not also, Latinx. yeah, so, and, and, and this is the fight I had yesterday uh, in the wake of the shooting as well, which is, look, to the do something crowd, um, if your objective is to secure the schools and to keep these mass shootings at schools limited and uh, to prevent the childhood deaths, then your policy prescriptions are going to look different than if your objective is to take guns. Right. That's right. right. And and so I can usually suss it out pretty quickly as to whether or not somebody is promoting the former objective versus the latter. Absolutely right. Yeah, because the fir- the, the obvious one to me is secure the facilities, pardon the target. And in fact, you know, after the Parkland uh, shooting, I was in the General Assembly at the time, state legislature, and uh, they came forward with a great uh, uh, package of, of funding and mechanisms, and I've reviewed that even today. That were, that were designed to harden schools. Of course, it makes sense to make sure you pay attention to protecting the people who will be the most vulnerable to a to a, a gun attack by a lunatic in the country. And I would say what is right at the heart, I mean, that when we're seeing some of the stuff emerge today about how law enforcement reacted there, we'll learn more over time. Was there an encounter by a school resource officer with the gunman before that gunman got to that classroom? That needs to be answered. Uh, why was a door open or available? You know, could a, could a door be penetrated? Certainly hardening. And and those who say, you know, immediately jump to the conclusion, somehow we should magically wipe out guns from our society and rely on government to protect us all from the from the crazy person who will still exist, are those same people that are seeing government failure after failure after failure, including perhaps what we saw there. Right. This is to the point that uh, the, there's this report that the cops sat outside and had, quote, contained him to the classroom where he slaughtered all of those kids. Right. But they'd never went in, which I thought they had they had reassessed that approach after Columbine. Well, I thought so, too. And even, you know, we're all accustomed to seeing, and I have not, I'm not, not an expert in this, but you see in hostage situations, and the government may try to engage the person and talk to them. But, but when the hostages are being killed, you go in. Right. And uh, so I, I don't know what will ultimately account, you know, what accounting there will be for that. But I think— you have to know what occurred uh, before you can make a rational. And I think it falls to those of us who – it, it isn't any fun because the full media turns their full blast on on uh, people you know, and, and uh, demonizes people who w- want to make legislation a rational process. But you just have to have the, the, the will to stand up to that and take the blast and do what's right. So that actually uh, will allow me to pivot into sort of an assessment of the last primary – News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Congressman Dan Bishop in studio with me. Got a question for you. Came in on the uh, email. Ask, Dan, how we can find $40 billion for Ukraine, but seemingly cannot come up with the money for a border wall or even secure schools. I want to know what hold that formerly insignificant plot of land in Eastern Europe has over our leaders and much of the world's too. So I'm, I'm not going to endorse the last little bit of, of that question, but, but uh, I didn't plant that guy. I, I'll <laughs> say, but, you know, um, I was among the 57 members of the House who voted against the $40 billion appropriation for Ukraine. And here's my view of all that. I think uh, 
Putin's war is one of aggression. I think he's a very bad guy. I think they've committed war crimes. I the the, the intel from the war front is always uh, conflicting and and confused. And I think you ought to keep your your open mind. But uh, I believe there have been uh, atrocities committed against civilians. It's a bad deal. Um, the United States cannot go fight and and dominate the fighting of every uh, conflict everywhere in the world. This is on the border of Russia. It's always been, you know, in the and it was in this it was a satellite and, and part of the Soviet Union. It, um, the the notion and and here's the big thing. I, I would I, and I go along. I believe in sending uh, weapons there and allowing them to or enabling them to fight for themselves because I think they're fighting for freedom and for self determination in Ukraine. But this is a European problem. That Europe must lead. The United States has appropriated fifty four billion dollars. It's it no you know, maybe Estonia as a percent of GDP is close, but that's not the issue. What is United Kingdom, Britain, and France, and Italy, and Greece, and uh, and all of the other nations of continental Europe should be the leaders on this? And and so the point of the of the email is correct. Uh, we've seen unstoppable spending by the federal government. The point we have inflation highest in forty years. That may be the top thing to talk about, and it really, for it, gas prices are out of out of people's reach now, and uh, it's getting worse. And so, just to go dump another forty billion that we're borrowing from China to spend in Ukraine, because in some notion of the United States hegemonic uh, leadership responsibilities in the world, I think it's insane. I'm not an isolationist. I don't think we should be isolationist, but we're way over our skis. It ought to be a European leadership issue to, to deal with the Ukraine situation. So by giving the money, you think that it allowed Europe not to lead? Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and if you look at the relative contributions, uh, all those nations, you know, Europe taken as a whole has about $14 trillion in GDP. United States has about 20, 21, somewhere in there. Uh, so we have a, a bigger GDP. But even if you look at it from that point, I can't imagine a reason for there to be greater than parity. That, that is to say, Europe ought to be doing at least as much as the United States. In other words, a bigger part of its GDP because it's, an, it's a European theater issue, and they need to step forward and take responsibility. The United States should play a supporting role, shouldn't be the nanny. So I will ask you the question I usually ask libertarians when we get into the isolationist arguments, pro and against and whatever, capital L libertarians. Um, if we are not going to act as sort of world's policemen, who would you – who would you like to see take it over? Who would you, who do you think would do that? Because throughout history, countries project power beyond their borders. And so if we're not going to do it, you're okay with, I guess, Europe doing it? Well, I think it's more a question of attenuating. I believe that the United States should play a significant role in diplomacy and as necessary in uh, military matters around the world. But it ought to be proportional. The notion that what, what is happening, is just it falls under the Stein rule. You know, if something can't continue, it won't. It is we if when you look at what we got for spending eight trillion dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think it takes a madman to look at that and say, oh yeah, let's do more of that, and uh, and so it 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 really comes down to the means of the United States and the fact that we've got to be more mindful of the American people and what's happening here than we are of somebody else's conflict about which we're sympathetic uh, half the globe away. And, and some of, of course, jump in and say, well, this is Hitler. And the model is Hitler, and you got to stop this guy the first time, or he'll take over the whole world. Holy cow. That's just not, I mean, you could, that argument, the way you could use in that way to justify anything. Any, the slightest skirmish, you got to go stamp it out in any corner of the world. 
We just cannot do it. And I think it's a disservice to the American people. It's, it's potentially destructive of our society to try to do that. And you can see what the $8 trillion, as an example, in the Middle East uh, wrought to say that, that why that's true. Would there, if the 40, 50, whatever billion, if that had come from somewhere else that was already earmarked for spending or was already in the budget, if it had been taken like that, I. Well, I, I even think that would you have approved that? Like, it's an indication to me that wherever that forty billion dollars came from didn't really isn't true. It's not being spent well. Uh, true, not being and so ARPA money. But, but but I and I guess I'll throw one other thing. We did lend lease. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw that was one of the other bills I voted against. I was one of the very few that voted against it. But the last time we did that was and somebody said we streamlined lend lease. No, it didn't streamline. We rep. We did something that was last done in World War II. But when it was done in March of nineteen forty one, Hitler had. Uh, split, had invaded Austria, had split up Czechoslovakia, had invaded Poland, had uh, occupied Denway, uh, Denmark and Norway, had uh, destroyed uh, 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 Belgium, had r- destroyed France, had bombed Britain for nine months. It was a whole different game. That was because there was nothing left of Europe to stand up and keep the thing going. This Europe's quite capable. They don't intend to do anything, and they don't do anything because they know that the people of the United States will be sucked dry to take responsibility for every problem. That has to stop. So uh, I, I talked um, before the break about getting into some of the primaries. So uh, do you have any general takeaways? You were a uh, Ted Budd supporter, yep. uh, so he won big. I was, have... I was pleased with the Republican right. primary. Ted, I think Ted was the right guy. Uh, he had a massive win. I think that's a good sign. I think he's and he's and he, I think he's well suited, uh, well situated for the general election. You work with him in Congress. I did, and I, I know him to be a, a reliable voter. On takes tough votes. Not, none of us gets every single one of them right. I've disagreed with Ted on a couple of things, but I know he takes the tough votes under pressure. And and I think that's uh, that's the mark of somebody in Congress who will make a ch- make change. Uh, the other big thing for me was the Sup- North Carolina Supreme Court primary. Uh, between Trey Allen and his opponent, primary opponent, he I endorsed him. He won. Uh, I think uh, what we've seen from the North Carolina Supreme Court, a bare Democrat majority 4-3, has been the most partisan of uh, the misuses of the judicial power. It has to change, uh, and I believe we got the right uh, candidate to uh, to go uh, do that. And uh, so there are two, have two now. One didn't have a primary. Rich Dietz and, and uh, Trey Allen be the Republican candidates, and uh, I think we have the opportunity to have a – the most constitutionalist, uh, uh, um, well-oriented, uh, appropriately humble judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court that we've had in ever, and uh, I hope it turns out. I think it will. Um, the uh, was April Wood, I believe, and she lost. Right, uh, but she's a court of appeals. She's the chief, right, on the court of appeals. She's not the chief. Oh, That's not Donna the chief. Stroud. Donna uh, Stroud. But uh, but. Uh, April will continue in her in right. her seat on the Court of Appeals, and and uh, that's a court that is uh, that Republicans have had success in. Ten ten out of the fifteen members are Republicans now. Uh, I think there's some improvements in the way our state judiciary operates in a lot of respects. I'd like to see, but I think we're on the right path. Yeah, uh, and Cooper won't have to appoint her replacement either. Correct. Is, I heard that as a and it didn't even dawn on me, but that is a that is a completely valid strategy. To keep in mind that if you're if the Republican voters had put her into the uh, general election, then Cooper would have gotten an appointment onto the Court of Appeals. Right. Yeah. Congressman Dan Bishop, always a pleasure. Thank uh, you, Pete. Thanks for uh, joining me for so long. I appreciate that. We'll have you back on whenever you'd like. And I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Uh, that's Congressman Dan Bishop. 
You're listening to the Pete Callender Show, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. If you missed any of this, remember, get the podcast. It's going to get loaded up here within mere moments. Bernie is hard at work. Not really, but he's doing it. All right, news is next.